Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, everyone. It's Eric from IndieWire. And this week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Vimeo. So if you go to the URL, Vimeo.com slash IndieWire, you can see a whole bunch of movies that I personally like very much. And I think you will, too. So you can rent them there for some pretty reasonable prices. And this week, I'd like to single out one movie that's uh, opened theatrically just a little while earlier this year that I like quite a bit. It's called The Wolf Pack. It won the Grand Jury Prize in the documentary section at Sundance this year. And you can rent it for six ninety nine which is pretty reasonable, a lot less than you'd pay to see it in theaters. But it's really something else. It's about a whole group of kids who were raised in this apartment in the Lower East Side in Manhattan and never saw the light of day or never experienced the outside world until their teen years. And so everything they know about the world is through movies. So it's almost this ethnographic experience. What's it like to start with a blank slate and learn everything about the world through the movies, which is something I think a lot of us can actually relate to. So go check out The Wolf Pack for six ninety nine and see some of those other movies on Vimeo. Uh, there's a bunch that I've mentioned in past episodes that I can tell people really like. So far, a bunch of you have dug World of Tomorrow, Don Hertzfeld's terrific short film, which at four bucks is a great way to try out the whole Vimeo On Demand experience. But there's a bunch of other stuff worth checking out. So again, Vimeo On Demand slash IndieWire, that's the URL where you can watch all these different movies. And of course, let me know what you think about them, because I love hearing from you guys. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Gohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. And Ann, that moment has arrived where we actually have real movies to talk about in the fall because for weeks we've been anticipating the Toronto Film Festival lineup as well as the Venice Film Festival lineup, uh, just mainly because all of these different movies are going to have a real tangible effect on award season, and also because there's just a lot of new movies to talk about. And this week, we got that lineup. So there's a lot of obvious stuff in there from Scott Cooper's Black Mass and The Danish Girl with Eddie Redmayne and Beasts of No Nation, but there's some surprises too. So what's your assessment? Well, Toronto is a big, fat, sprawling festival, and we haven't gotten the whole lineup yet uh, because they're going to be doing a lot of acquisitions titles um, in their new platform series, and we haven't heard about uh, the documentaries yet, and there's there's like a world cinema and a midnight cinema, so a lot of foreign films and acquisitions titles and docs are still to come. Michael Moore, that was a big surprise. Um, yeah, we had no idea that movie even existed. He did a thing uh, very equivalent and presumably uh, as paranoid <laughs> as uh, Laura Poitras' Citizen Four in the sense that he's, he's uh, Where to Invade Next is all about, uh, you know, our, our uh, sort of warmongering nation <laughs> and its uh, reasons for doing things. Uh, war is the health of the state, as I learned in college, um, seems to be the take that he has. But that was fun watching him go on Paris 
scope and sort of talk about his top secret movie and not having done any publicity for an entire year. <laughs> yeah. Michael well, Moore, think, that's hard. I had just recently been thinking about how long it's been, and it's been at, at least five years since Capitalism, A Love Story, which also went to Toronto and was kind of a dud. And that's true. I don't know. I mean, I go back and forth about this guy. I think that there are periods of time where his kind of voice and the way in which these movies opened up certain issues to a larger audience had a certain vitality. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case right now, but I do find that he can be very entertaining in ways that may be worth checking out. So I am sort of looking forward to it now that it's here. Oh, that being I totally said, am. I totally am. But the other thing is that is that something like Bowling for Columbine in retrospect was an amazingly prescient and perceptive look at why our culture is so violent. And by the way, we haven't seemed to have gone very far since then. No, that's true. That's true. I, I guess the, the thing that, that makes me sort of skeptical from the outset is that there are ways in which I think the American public is far more skeptical about issues pertaining to diplomacy and uh, the military and various sorts of governmental tactics that was not there when, say, Fahrenheit 9-11 came out. And so I wonder whether this is the time for a movie like this. Oh, I think it totally is, because what he's basically analyzing is is it's almost the same idea as the corporations are running uh, the, the, the policies of our country and, and are actually behind the candidates that are capable of winning office. Sure, because, I just don't think that's But this is the same thing. This is the idea that the military-industrial complex is running our foreign yeah. policy. I, I know. I just don't think that's a very complicated idea. So I basically, a movie like that, I want, I want him to prove it's worth to me. And so I'm, I'm excited for that challenge. My sense, my guess, if I know him at all, having come from a couple of, you know, Sicko was a little disappointing also. Yeah. I would suggest that he's, he's looking for a comeback and he's taking this very seriously and he's competing with Laura Poitras. That's my that's my sense. So I'm looking forward to a, 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 a the the A tier Michael Moore on on this one. I'm Another also movie. looking forward to Jay Roach's Trumbo. By the way, sure, sure. With with Brian Cranston, I mean that's that's one that could certainly wind up on Telluride and, and be a part of the awards conversation. Dalton Trumbo being a fascinating figure in sort of Hollywood mythology and. Being blacklisted is that's a, a topic that tends to to translate well, I think, to 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 the kind of story that seems to be on display here. Um, I, I would expect it to be a smaller movie, maybe not uh, as as big as as some of the things, some of the other things on this list, more sort of focused around the performance and one particular time in Trumbo's life. But it's certainly something we've been hearing about for a little bit that, that holds some potential. I'm actually really curious about Peter Sollett's new movie, Freeheld, which is his first feature since Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist back in 2008. Uh, really talented guy. Obviously, his first film, Raising Victor Vargas, was a big hit. And um, this new one has I a pretty great I wouldn't say big hit. <laughs> relatively speaking. <laughs> indie. Indie hit. That's that's the world that we live in. Uh-huh. I live in anyway. But it's got Ellen Page, it's got Julianne Moore, it's got Steve Carell, and uh, it's actually based on a short documentary about this gay uh, New Jersey police officer who has terminal cancer, 
who tries to work to get her pension plan transferred to her her life partner. So it's not necessarily the kind of story that I would get excited about, but from this director, his movies tend to have a certain emotional resonance without feeling like they're pandering. There's a certain legitimacy to the performances, to the way the story moves along, and also a sense of being able to juggle a lot of different characters at once. It, it has a lot of potential, and that's another one that you know wasn't high on our, our radar in terms of big fall season movies, but it's certainly one that I'm looking forward to. There's what a if- lot of LGBT material this year. Not only do we have Todd Haynes' Carol, which is obviously oh. going to be playing all these festivals as well, but there's About Ray, which is the retitled Three Generations from the Weinstein Co. Now, that, that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, I don't know if that's going to play Toronto or not, but that's going to be in the conversation. I'm curious to see if it shows up at some some festivals. It's L. Chan, L. Fanning as a uh, transgender teen, so there's right. three of them basically. And then the Danish girl, of course, of course, which I mentioned before with Eddie Redmayne, which could go either way. So those are all out there. And then there's some bigger stuff. Jake Gyllenhaal is in opening night films for both Toronto and Venice with Demolition at Toronto and Everest at. At Venice, I don't know if either of those are really award season movies per se, but they're certainly they seem like they'll they'll have the kind of scope that will attract some attention uh, in either case. And and then there there are things like Lenny Abramson's Room. Now his last movie Frank was um, was a, a very peculiar kind of musical comedy of sorts, and this doesn't look anything like that. But that being said, I think that it's it's got something going on. I mean, it's the trailer. I've started to watch trailers more and more as we've headed into to the fall season, and this one is is kind of peculiar in in a certain way. I mean, it's it it's got Brit. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, Brie Larson in this lead role is this is this woman dealing with a really dark situation, and uh, it's based on a novel that has a lot of supporters, and um, it's uh, it looks beautiful. So I'm, I'm really curious. I think that's that a very strong candidate. I'm very excited by that. I think uh, Brie Larson was so good in Short Term 12, and this is, she's been in these sort of supporting roles ever since, and this one gives her something to really chew on. And I think Joan Allen could be a factor if it's as good as I think it is um, in, in this. And A24 is going to go all out for it. So Yeah, and that company's obviously been angling to get into the award season for a while now, so they've got... You know, last year they they tried to do it with a most violent year and it didn't exactly play out. But this time around, maybe they'll they'll have a little bit more momentum going into it. So that, that it'll be a curious one to to track. There's some weirder things that are probably not going to get the same sort of traction, but will probably at the same time have plenty of people talking about them. I was thinking about Charlie Kaufman's movie, which I may have heard something about this a while ago, but I. Totally forgot it was kind of in, in the mix. And Melissa, I think I have that right, this yep. animated movie. Yep. So That's exciting. I can't wait is, to see what he yeah. does. He's always interesting. Um, he's. I mean, the other movie I'm interested in is Spotlight, which is Thomas McCarthy's journalism, Boston, uh, a team of reporters, sort of like all the president's men, a team of reporters going after uh, the uh, Catholic Church in Boston, the sex scandals there. Um, and that has a, a lot of potential, I think, with Mark Ruffalo and Michael Keaton in his first role since Birdman. Sure. I mean, it's uh, it's probably one of the more conventional options in that respect, but he's a talented director, and 
discounting this, this, if you set aside last year's uh, the cobbler with adam sandler tom mccarthy has a pretty solid track record as a director and he's an actor's director because he's also an actor so that's certainly a movie that holds a lot of potential in, in, in a kind of conventional award season drama sort of sense i mean it, that being said there's a lot of stuff it looks like even though even just a few weeks ago it didn't seem like maybe the craziest most competitive year for these kinds of movies the more you look at it the more it seems to be piling up in fact you just ran something today surveying a lot of the stuff this fall and it, it's looking like a pretty heavy year wouldn't you say? one thing i said to somebody on twitter though was you know this is of course when when hope we were all starry-eyed and we're thinking oh god all these movies are going to be great you know <laughs> And the whole point is, is that you go to Toronto and, and, and you're, you know, you see, uh, the reality sets in, you know, as some of them turn out to be a little bit disappointing. Like is beasts of no nation going to be as good as we all want it to be? I hear it's really violent. You know, I love, love, love this new distribution paradigm that they've come up with, which is pretty exciting, um, and very groundbreaking, um, in the sense that it's, it's a, uh, Netflix is basically getting Bleecker to do the uh, theatrical for it, and and we knew they were going to have to come up with something like this. And Carrie Fukunaga had had worked with some of the team from Focus Features that are over at um, Bleecker, so there was a relationship there. And then there's landmark theaters in you know who are in about twenty markets or, are are going to be. Uh, running the theatrical side of it. So that's a very interesting uh, in some ways the day and date uh, paradigm. The uh, distribution plan may be more groundbreaking than the movie itself. I mean, we have to see. I mean that's I mean I'm excited by that, but we, well this sort of goes along with the paramount innovation that occurred recently as well, so where they're going to shorten the window uh, on a several low budget horror films which we talked about, but it's the same it's the same thing. It's like everybody's trying to to come up and the indies can do it, you know. The indies can can make these these changes and Netflix can can break the rules. The question is, how much is Netflix going to invest? And they can afford it. It's up to them. But they're arguing that they're, you know, that investing in a theatrical release isn't going to take away from the number of people that are going to go online to watch it. It's just going to grow the audience. So that's well, something that remains to be seen. I was looking at that uh, speech that uh, the the head of Netflix. Uh, gave recently and um, Ted Sarandos was, was talking about um, Adam Sandler and someone said someone asked him if he was worried because Pixels wasn't a huge success and, and they have this four picture deal with him and he said look it's it's making if you add in the international grosses it's making 50 million dollars which is not terrible and I almost wonder if the Netflix like their metrics are different they're, they're, the way that they quantify success is different especially if they're outsourcing on some level their theatrical grosses to somebody else and they're also very secretive about how things perform so just getting a sense of whether or not this approach is successful is going to be a very difficult thing for for anybody. I agree with that. I agree with that. But you will have um, box office numbers. You will have um, filmmakers and and uh, awards campaigns. That's what fascinates me. They need that theatrical release to get to an awards campaign. That's why they're doing it. You know. I mean, the real. Um, <laughs> paradigm shifter will be when Netflix has a movie of this profile, you know, and 
and doesn't go in theaters, you know? <laughs> right, right. In any case, as much as this company seems to experiment and, and baffle people at times, they, they are succeeding. I mean, if you look at the stories this week about relativity filing for bankruptcy, it really puts things in context in terms of, you know, when, when a company is, is on top of it and when they're not. And that's something that you've, you've been talking about Absolutely. for a little while. Absolutely. And I mean, the relativity story is, is heartbreaking when you look at it from the point of view of all the filmmakers that were hoping that their films were going to be produced and or released. And now they're in limbo and something like Jane's got a gun, you know, seems to have pulled out in time to find another, you know, option. But it's really bad when you get caught inside the maw of the actual bankruptcy because it just puts everything on hold as they try to figure out what their assets are and put a valuation on them and the investors try to get their money back. But the real um, story from a bigger perspective is that everyone in Hollywood knew that this was a a stack of cards that was going to fall down for a really long time. And Ryan... um, uh, was able to, you know, Kavanaugh was able, it was this very charming, very uh, aggressive uh, sort of snake oil salesman who, who really persuaded a lot of people that they could make money with him. But if you, if you, if you were really, you know, that was sort of a, a place of last resort to go. And, and when you couldn't get the studios uh, to make your movie and, and they threw away a lot of good movies and didn't market and distribute them effectively. I, I, I think uh, Gina Prince-Bythewaite's Beyond the Lights is a classic example of that. So, um, you know, it's, it's not surprising. But the one thing that it does bring to light is just this is not an easy business, and it's not even a, a logical business for people. I mean, it's not like Hardly. a lot of people are, are, good, are in the movies, you know, because it's, it's a, an easy business model to make money at. I mean, it's just a lot of people get into it. And they, they, they bring certain assess, uh, you know, assumptions to the table about how to market a movie or, or, how, or, or even what a successful movie is and, and just face a series of, of defeats. And it makes you wonder how many other companies are out there like that. I mean, it seems like there's a proliferation of distributors and production companies just in the last few years, but a denser marketplace isn't necessarily a healthier one. And at this year's Toronto probably will see a lot of those people coming out of the woodwork, and it'll, it'll give you a chance to really assess who really has an idea of what they're doing versus those who do not. Well, they're, it's interesting. I mean, people are complaining that they're losing a, a valuable um, buyer in the marketplace. Well, the truth is that we've been adding buyers, and it's now there's plenty of buyers now. Um, on the indie side, at least, I think I think uh, I think that that will be clear in in Toronto that there's a there's a pretty healthy uh, market for these things. And then in the meantime, people are spending ridiculous amounts of money on Oscar season. Well, I'm questioning, you know, um, I mean, even it's it's interesting. I mean, how how much money are people going to be willing to spend? The studios seem to be behaving conservatively in some cases, you know, sending things out in the summer, uh, letting, letting uh, the market decide if it's a winner or not before they, they gamble uh, all their awards money. I, I think that it's the filmmakers that drive the, the awards season more. I mean, Steve Jobs, obviously, is going to be one of the big high-profile uh, awards movies that might not have gotten made if the awards didn't exist. Sure. 
Sure. I mean, it looks really good in its slot as a centerpiece at New York Film Festival, as well as you know, Danny Boyle directing, Aaron Sorkin writing, this great looking Michael Fossman performance. It looks really strong, but also the kind of thing that could have easily been shifted into an HBO project, as Spielberg said Lincoln, Lincoln almost was a couple of years That's back. That's right. And it's interesting to look at Alex Gibney's documentary movie, which comes out August 7th, um, in light of the, you know, because you have a lot of the, the Sorkin movie is very much based on the big presentations of each of the new products and and of course you get to see a lot of the the behind the scenes on that so speaking of oscar movies there's actually one potential contender opening this week which we've addressed in the past but it's worth circling back to it now especially because we mentioned distributor a24 earlier and that's the end of the tour with jason segel jesse eisenberg david foster wallace story uh and it's a movie that isn't a big awards movie. It's certainly not a, not a big movie. I think it has potential, but it depends on whether it gets out from under this controversy that's all around it. Which... Well, so there, there's two things to look at here. One is Jason Segel's performance, and the other is Jason Segel's performance in relation to David Foster Wallace's legacy. And the, the controversy that you're referring to is, a, is one piece, as far as I know, written by Glenn Kenny that was published in The Guardian this past week, uh, because... Glenn was an editor of uh, David Foster Wallace's. At when Premier. I was at Premier, he was my colleague, and I and he did a wonderful job editing uh, the David Lynch story. And on, 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 he 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 and um, uh, David Foster Wallace became close. And so, what I would argue is that what Glenn wrote is a very beautifully written, very elegant, personal, emotional very much on hard on his sleeve account of how this movie doesn't match up to his own memory and his own sense of of who David Foster Wallace was and he doesn't I can't look at his piece as an objective critical appraisal of the film no well I mean, there's other, something else going on here too which is that I think uh, if you look at the movie on its own terms there there are there are some issues maybe with the the quote-unquote ghoulish nature of the project because it's framed by the suicide, but not with the performance itself, which, as somebody who's never been in the same room as David Foster Wallace, hasn't, hasn't really listened to any interviews with him. I have no real sense of it. As his- most moviegoers are in that category, yeah. and there are plenty of movies that take real people and make movies out of them. This happens all the time. Shakespeare did it on, on the big stage, and you know, movie makers are free to do this. And David Lipsky's rights were his to hold for this interview. He could do, he could make a movie out of it. The estate, the trust, the family of David Foster Wallace, which is trying to protect him and doesn't think he would have wanted this to exist, has no power over this. Right. And I don't, I honestly, I, 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 my sense is that if I was part of David Foster Wallace's family, I would probably be okay with this movie. I don't know what they think, but, uh, but in, a, in a general sense, I don't think that the American public or, for that matter, Academy voters really have anything to do with this quote-unquote controversy because... The, it's up it's, to the movie. It's entirely up to them. But if the if the movie is debunked in some big, you know, way, uh, and Glenn Kenny is a very well respected film critic, you know, he's he's not someone to dismiss at all. Um, if if it's debunked as something, you know, completely out out of you know, it can hurt an Oscar campaign for for something to be to be dubbed, you know, completely inauthentic. But I don't think that's happening here. 
No, especially because they're supporting him for they're they're submitting him for supporting actor. They're not which submitting. Which is really for, weird. I think that's so strange. I, I don't like it totally, at all. No, it makes sense. Remember last year with Foxcatcher, Steve Carell got in Best Actor by the skin of his teeth. That was not an obvious situation. And if he had been nominated for supporting actor, he might have won. I mean, Eddie Redmayne beat Michael Keaton, so somebody else could have upset that situation too. And I also think it's sort of a supporting performance in some ways. It's about this character from Rolling Stone discovering David Foster Wallace and spending some time they with him. They just think they have a better shot at winning and supporting, and they're putting Jesse Eisenberg up for Best Actor, which won't happen. And and he's like the bigger star or something. I don't get it at all. I mean, I do get it. I totally get it. I just think it's... I get annoyed I'm when, explaining when they you. play sort these of games. A, he's sort of a supporting character in this movie. Hardly. He dominates he, the whole thing. It's, it's about him, even if it's from the point of view of the David Lipsky character. Well, it's well, about David Foster is. Wallace. Yeah, it's about him through the lens of a, of a, an, a less successful writer trying to gra- grapple with his own problems. And I agree that he's sort of sent Stage. Yeah, and Jason Segel's the one who's getting all the big, oh, you know, stories in Entertainment yeah. Weekly and, and the New York Times and everything else. Well, all of this comes down to what you're saying, which is that th- these are campaigns and Correct. there's a system manipulation going on here. And it's it's sort of uh, disingenuous anyways to talk about the movies in these terms because that's not what they're made for and that's not really how we appreciate them. But that I hope people said, see the film on its own yeah, merits, and I hope people are inspired by the film to read the, the writings of David Foster Wallace. Well, they could do that, or they could see the new Mission Impossible movie this week. <laughs> Which is fantastic, I have to say. It's really yeah, fun. Okay. It's exactly what you think, and Tom Cruise is back in his comfort zone, and boy, does he know how to play the game. I liked it. I liked it. I, I feel like, on some level... People don't remember how subdued and almost classical the Brian De Palma movie was 20 years ago and and the way in which this franchise has evolved relatively slowly, given that there's only been five of them so far, in some ways mimics the the kinds of movies that are being made at at the various different stages in which it's been updated. Because this one... Well, they went back to the masks, which is an old trope. Sure, but I mean, in terms of what's enjoyable about it, it's it's a handful of, of pretty well-done sequences. I, I wasn't blown away. I, I, I enjoyed... Tom the, Cruise almost was. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I that opening the sequence with the plane is really yeah, worth the money. The opening sequence with the plane when he's underwater for several minutes right. when he's around on a, on a, on a motorbike. I, I, don't, I don't find it as... It didn't leave the same kind of impact on me. I wasn't as invested in that world because it's a movie that is ruthlessly entertaining in a way that is is very surface deep. And I'm not saying we need to ask something more. of No, we don't. And I think Macquarie knows that. But the craftsmanship that I appreciate has to do with his skills as a a storyteller, a screenwriter. You know, The Usual Suspects was something he wrote, etc. He's playing around with our expectations and moving the pieces around in a very satisfying way. I just think in a year when we're all blown away by Mad Max... Fury Road, a movie like this needs to be put in context. Yeah, it's better than Avengers 2, and it's it's certainly satisfying for what this franchise can do. I wouldn't say it's the best one. I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say John that Luther either. I don't understand too. why people are doing that. I mean, I would give De Palma that, that credit. 
I mean, to, to generate suspense around a single drop of sweat, I, I, haven't seen, I hadn't seen that in movies before, and I haven't seen it since. I mean, that's first-rate filmmaking. I, if people go in just, and just get swept up by this experience. I'm not opposed to that. They're I just, just relieved like that somebody's making a, a decently entertaining movie. I mean, they're hard to come by these days. Sure. Sure, I mean, there's just so much stuff that doesn't even try. And Paramount? Are you kidding? This movie is saving their bacon. That moribund studio, which is waiting for Sumner Redstone, basically. Um, it's like they're waiting for Godot. Um, this aged, you know, um, patriarch who's who's really hanging on by his fingernails, you know, to quote the old... The old um, image of him hanging from a hotel window which uh, during a fire which he survived um you know that that's that the studio is basically in whole on hold until until and they're and they finally have a hit which is fantastic for them i would say if you want to see a real explosive showdown in theaters this weekend you should go see best of enemies which is uh a different kind of uh, movie altogether. But, Plays uh, to a slightly different demo. <laughs> doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. I think that Best of Enemies, okay, this is a movie about Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley having a showdown in 1968 on National A verbal TV. showdown, an intellectual showdown. showdown. But it's incredibly entertaining. I mean, it it's, is. It's the uh, precedent for what cable news is today that's very obvious. And I think that if, if you have fun watching Tom Cruise speed around on a motorcycle, you might also enjoy these guys hurling verbal epithets at each other for, you know, 90 minutes, put in context. So the whole, the whole point is that there are bigger audiences out there for um, movies that you wouldn't expect there to be. And so I, as much as I'm, I think that Mission Impossible Rogue Nation is, is fine, there's just other things that I wish people would prioritize, whether it is End of the Tour or Best of Enemies. And in some ways, I'm actually glad that we're heading into Oscar season for that very reason, because it at least gives us an excuse to prioritize things that are maybe have a little bit more depth to them and uh, also the possibility of reaching more audiences. Amen to that. Amen to that, Eric. And um, there's plenty more to discuss when, when we come back next week. That's right. We've got next week, Ricky and the Flash will be opening, so we can dig into that a little bit. Uh, I'll be in the Locarno Film Festival, where I recorded an episode last year running the, the Critics Academy, which you'll be joining me for later on. So we've got all kinds of stuff in store in that in that respect. And none of it actually has to do with award season. So we, we might even get to take another little break from all these different things to talk about some other kinds of movies. What do you think? I like it. Talk to you soon. See you in Switzerland. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.